All right, let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to Psalm 83. We've been going through the book of Psalms and uh, kind of a survey of them. We haven't been doing every one. I picked Psalm 83 for a couple of reasons. One of them is it has an imprecatory part of the psalm. And that's something that I wanted to discuss as far as how it pertains to us uh, in our day today. And the idea of imprecatory is where you're asking God to, to bring judgment upon your enemies. Okay. So that's one of the things I wanted to address. And also you'll see as we go through it, there seems to be a very current application to what we read about here in Psalm 83. As we look at the beginning of the psalm, it says it's a song, a psalm of Asaph. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Asaph was a Levite musician in David's day. He was one of the chief musicians and he was over the Levitical choirs. It seems like his main instrument was cymbals, that he played the resounding cymbals. So, you know, yay for loud drummers, you know. Um, 12 psalms are attributed to him. Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 through 83. So this is the last one in the list of Psalms that's attributed to Asaph. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, when Hezekiah is putting together again the the worship in his day, and of course this is going fast forward from Asaph's day, um, man, at, at least I think a couple hundred years, they refer back to Asaph because he was, again, one of the ones that was over the little Levitical choirs, and they refer to him as a seer. And the word seer means a prophet. And I think that might factor in as we're looking at the content of Psalm 83 today. So let's jump right in. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. One of the elements of the Psalms is that it's written in a poetic form, Hebrew poetry. And one of the elements of Hebrew poetry is that of parallel thoughts. With English poetry, we have words that rhyme. In Hebrew poetry, we have thoughts that rhyme. And you can see that throughout this section. In other words, the psalmist is stating something and then he's saying virtually the same thing again and again, bringing emphasis to what's being stated. So look at verse one with me, if you will. Notice, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still. You see how he's saying basically the same thing over and over. He's calling for God to act. We've got trouble. We're calling on you to come and help us in our trouble. Notice the same idea in verse two. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. Can you see how enemies and those who hate you 
are a parallel thought there, basically saying the same thing, but emphasizing your enemies, they hate you. And notice they make a tumult or they're making an uproar. They're lifting up their head or they're exalting themselves, puffed up with pride as they're coming against. Notice verse three, they have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. Do you see again the parallel thoughts that are there? Crafty counsel consulted together against your people, against your sheltered ones. And what are they doing? Verse four, they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. God, we need your help. The people who hate you are rising up against us and they wanna completely destroy us. This is something that we see throughout the Bible. When Israel first began to become a nation and grow in Egypt, after Jacob had taken his family down to Egypt because of the famine that was in the land, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so he saw the children of Israel and how they grew into this great people. And so he began to persecute them. And he commanded the Hebrew midwives that when the Hebrew women are giving birth, that they're to take the baby if it's a boy and kill the baby right then so that he would shrink the nation. But the Hebrew midwives, they feared God and so they wouldn't do it. And so the Pharaoh commanded anybody, you see a male baby, you throw him into the Nile River. But God protected his people and they grew as a nation and they ended up coming out of the land of Egypt. Then if you fast forward into the days of the Babylonian captivity in the book of Esther and, and after the children of Israel have come back to Babylon, but there's still some over there in Persia. And you have this man named Haman that is not content to just kill Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, but he wants to annihilate all the Jewish people. And so what does God do? He allows the Jewish people to rise up and defend themselves and defend themselves they did. And the Feast of Purim is celebrated to this day over that victory. You fast forward into the New Testament and you see King Herod, when Jesus was born, he, ki he kills all of the toddlers in Bethlehem because he wants to put to death the Jewish Messiah who has come into the world to save the world. It's very clear in scripture that this anti-Semitic theme that we see going on is satanic, that the devil is the one behind it. And we can see that very clearly. If you'd like, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, all the way to the end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 12. The crux of this hatred that we see is spiritual. Satan hates God and Satan hates God's people. When we come to chapter 12, notice how it starts off. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. So immediately we're instructed that this is something that is a sign, it's representing something. It's not something literal that he was looking at, but it's something that's representing something. And as we take a look at this and seek to interpret what Revelation chapter 12 is talking about, 
The best way that we can interpret the book of Revelation is to go back into the Old Testament and see if there's something that Revelation is pointing back to that, we can, that can help us interpret what is being stated. In Genesis chapter 37, you see Joseph having a dream that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down before him. And it's speaking about how he's going to be elevated uh, one day and that, that his family is gonna come and bow down before him. Well, he told the dream to his brothers, his brothers hated him, but his dad came to him and said, shall I and your mother, the sun and the moon and your brothers, the 11 stars come and bow down before you. And so what is that picturing? It's picturing the beginning of the nation of Israel. Jacob, his name changed to Israel, his 12 sons, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as we look at Revelation chapter 12, the woman that's clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars, it points us back, doesn't it? It's like, hey, I remember reading that back in the book of Genesis. And so let's look at it like the woman represents the nation of Israel, okay? Verse two, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. I'm gonna suggest this to you, that the nation of Israel has brought into this world a child who is going to save the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, who could this be referring to? You know, the neat thing about this is it tells us right here in the same chapter. This dragon, look over at verse nine. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and notice, and his angels were cast out with him. So this dragon represents the devil. Israel is bringing into the world the Messiah. There is the devil, verse four. It says of the dragon, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. It makes sense, doesn't it? As we look back at the birth of Jesus and the spiritual force behind King Herod is to kill that baby. Let's get rid of that baby. Why? Because this is the savior of the world who has come to redeem mankind. Now, verse four is the verse that scholars look at that suggests that a third of the angels sided with Lucifer when he rebelled against God. And that makes sense too when you compare verse nine, that his angels were cast out as well. Then you look at verse five and it says, she bore a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. As you look at this child who's going to rule with a rod of iron, again, we go back to Psalm two, the prophetic Psalm that's speaking of the king that's to come, speaking of the Messiah. Also Revelation chapter two, Revelation chapter 19, identify that this is referring to Jesus. And so Israel brings into the world the Messiah, and then he is caught up to God in reference to his ascension after his death and resurrection. And then we'll stop with verse six, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days 
or three and a half years. And I think that sets us in the time frame of Israel fleeing during the period of the Great Tribulation where God is supernaturally protecting them during that time. Really the whole point I wanted to get to by going to Revelation chapter 12 is to show the spiritual influence and pressure that is behind the anti-Semitism that we see not only taking place in the book of Exodus and the book of Esther and in the book of Matthew, but as we see it going throughout history, we think of the Holocaust uh, that took place with Hitler and the persecution of the Jewish people. Why such hatred uh, against the Jewish people? And we look at what's taking place today, and this is why I think part of this is very, very current in our day and age. Why is there such hatred towards the Jewish people? I'm gonna suggest to you that there is a spiritual influence that's behind all of this. You know, in one sense, I can kind of see in the Middle East where they're battling over land and so forth. But why Europe? Why, why America? Why is there such a hatred inside? And I'm gonna suggest to you is because the devil hates God and the devil hates God's people and he's doing whatever he can to try and wipe them out. It tells us in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, the entire world is being influenced in a spiritual way by the devil. And so here we come back to our Psalm and we see Asaph in his day, he's crying out to God and asking for deliverance from him. And notice the people, the enemies of God in Psalm 83 that Asaph spells out, beginning from verse five. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Now, these names are, are for the most part all familiar to us as we read through the Old Testament. And let's just take a look at them and I'll pull up a map here. Uh, this is the value, by the way, of sitting in the front row when you come to church, as you can read these a little bit easier. But this is a map of the kingdom in the days of Solomon. So this is Israel at its zenith, if you will. And so we see Israel in the north, we see Judah. It's the divided kingdom actually just after the days of Solomon. And you can see on the, to the east of Israel that there's Edom in the south and Moab and Ammon and then Aram, another name for Syria uh, in the northeast. And then you have Phoenicia uh, to the northwest and then Philistia to the west and to the south of you have uh, Egypt. And of course, there would be Saudi Arabia there as well. So he mentions the tents of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. The Ishmaelites were the descendants of Ishmael, who was the son of Abraham. Abraham had Ishmael by his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, and um, that was the birth of the Arab people, if you will. And so this is the son of ha Abraham and Hagar. The Moabites are the descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't know if they were thinking that the entire population was destroyed after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Moab is the 
result of Lot's incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. And so from them came the, the Moabites. The Hagrites, you know, I've read some commentaries where people will associate the Hagrites with Hagar and focus on Egypt and so forth, but you can actually find the Hagrites in the Old Testament, and they seem to be a group that dwelt east of Gilead, Gilead being uh, there just south and to the east of the Sea of Galilee. So again, same area of Edom, Moab, and and also Ammon. Gebel, uh, as you see that in a couple of places in the Old Testament, it refers to just north of Israel or Lebanon. Uh, Ammon is uh, the brother, if you will, kind of, of Moab. He's also a product of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his other daughter after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, from which came the Amalekites. And we read about the Amalekites in the days when Moses was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and the Amalekites were attacking the scragglers uh, as they went on. And that's where Joshua went out and, and fought with the armies of Israel. And Moses, as long as he held his staff in his hand, Joshua had the victory over the Amalekites. But when his arms got heavy, then the Amalekites started having the victory. And so Aaron and Hur got on either side and, and held up Moses' arms so the rod of God could stay up. And victory over the Amalekites. They were perennial enemies of Israel. King Saul was instructed to wipe out the Amalekites, but he failed. He even kept their king, King Agag, alive. And it is interesting to note that Haman in the book of Esther, the one that was trying to completely annihilate the Jews, was referred to as an Agagite. Philistia uh, would refer to the Philistines. They dwelt to the west of Israel. It's present-day Gaza today, Philistia, and the Philistines were immigrants from the island of Crete. Tyre is to the north, which would be present-day Lebanon, and there were times, especially in the days of David and Solomon, where they were friendly to the children of Israel. They sent down cedars from Lebanon to help David build his house, to help Solomon build his house, and of course, the temple at that time as well. Assyria was more an empire. They were the ones that were to the north of Syria, northern Iraq. They're the, the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. And they're the ones that took the 10 northern tribes into captivity in 722 BC. They were conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are the ones who took the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity in 586 BC. And so these nations that are gathered together, um, as it says at the end of verse five, Assyria joined them and helped the children of Lot. These 10 people groups that are gathered together, notice what it said in, in verse five. They've consulted together with one consent or literally with one heart, we're on the same page, and they form a confederacy. Literally, they cut a covenant against you, again, against God, and of course, against his people. So the question is, when did this happen? As we're reading it. Some will mention 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and this is the days of Jehoshaphat. And in the days of Jehoshaphat, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, they came against Israel. This is where Jehoshaphat goes out and he sees this overwhelming army 
And, and he prays and he goes, Lord, we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And this is where, check this out. This is where I think it's, it's Jehaziel uh, rises up and, and, he, and he's a descendant of Asaph. That's the cool thing about it because we're reading a Psalm of Asaph. And he rises up and he goes, hey, the battle is not yours battles the Lord's, you know, amen? The battle belongs to the Lord. And so they, they gained victory that day, but that was three of these people groups that gathered together. When did these 10 form a confederacy and were of one heart? Wycliffe's commentary says the occasion cannot be identified with certainty because at no period in Israel's history has such a confederation of nations existed. And the question that I'll throw out is could this be awaiting fulfillment? Could there be an element of prophecy in this? Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Not everybody believes Psalm 83 is prophetic, but I find it very intriguing. And I'll also just weave back in how they mentioned Asaph. When I said this at the beginning, in Hezekiah's day, they referred to him as a seer, as a prophet. Okay, so according to history, this hasn't taken place yet. Could it be awaiting fulfillment? Let's jump ahead into the future. On May 14th, 1948, Israel declared its sovereignty. Israel becomes a nation at that time. There is great resistance from the Arabs that surround Israel. Again, this is where it's not only valuable to be in the front row, but where it's valuable to have a really good eyesight in the front row to be able to see what this is saying. And so the nations that came against Israel in 1948 were Egypt and Saudi Arabia in the south, Jordan and Iraq to the east, and Syria and Lebanon to the north. And this has become such an interesting topic today, hasn't it? Because of the unrest that is taking place in the Middle East. And there's always been unrest in the Middle East, right? I mean, ever since I've been alive, ever since Israel declared their sovereignty, there's been unrest, but there's never been an attack like there's been recently. I mean, they mentioned that there's never happened anything this bad since the days of the Holocaust. And this has really turned the whole Middle East on its head right now. This is why I believe this is, you know, it's current for us today. And it's, a, it's something that, that's, that's need, needing to be addressed. And my, my point here is not to push Psalm 83 as, as prophetic or a fulfillment. Actually, some people think that 1948 was the fulfillment of Psalm 83, but it's, it's not my agenda at all. It's, it's simply that it coincides very, very well with what is taking place today. And so Israel battled for her independence. And this was something that began uh, with the British mandate that was taking place, Arabs and Jews in the land, and they're just not getting along. They still don't get along. They're not gonna get along, you guys. You know, the two-state solution, I'm not trying to get political, it's just not gonna work, you know? And it, it, there, there's a reason why it's not gonna work uh, as well. But notice as they, as they declare their sovereignty, they basically take what was allotted to them. We'll take this part, they leave the West Bank, they leave Gaza, but the, um, the Arabs, the taking the name Palestinians uh, are not in favor of that. And so again, they attack. Not 20 years later, they attack again in the 1967 Six-Day War. And again, it's basically similar nations that attacked against them. Look at the before and after of that. 
okay? On the left before the 67 war, on the right after the 67 war. So, and it's six days and Israel conquers the West Bank, they conquer Gaza, they conquer the Sinai Peninsula, they conquer the Golan Heights up in the north above the Sea of Galilee. It's like they were victorious. You know, it's basically what we see on our maps of, of biblical Israel, you know, as we're looking at it. Ever since then, they've been giving back land, land for peace, land for peace. We'll give back land if you'll just stop firing rockets at us. And, and admittedly, I recognize it's, it's an issue that's going on over there and it's going on in our day today. By the way, in 1967 is where they regained control of the Temple Mount, okay, 2000 years. Uh, since that. And so they've regained control. There, there is still like the, the functioning up there uh, is given over to, um, you know, the, the, those um, uh, Muslims and so forth for the Dome of the Rock and the Allah's Mosque and so forth. But uh, again, basically same nations that are surrounding Israel that are mentioned in Psalm 83 geographically that are attacking. And then the current conflict today that is taking place. It mainly has come out, or it origination, originated, I should say, in the Gaza Strip, ancient Philistia, where, uh, again, where the Philistines, the basic geographic area where they were at today, but also what's referred to as the West Bank, and this is biblical Judea and Samaria, that is um, hotbeds uh, coming against coming against Israel today. So, so that is where the conflict is taking place. I'm bringing this up for a reason, that, I, that this is what I find intriguing. So we see Asaph mentioning this. We don't see a place in the Bible where we would say, oh, this was fulfilled right here, where this group is coming against them and Asaph is crying out for help. We see a, a, a similar thing in Israel's uh, War of Independence and also in the Six-Day War in 67. What we do know to be prophetic is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the Battle of Gog and Magog. And this is where Israel is uh, attacked from Russia and from Iran, Northern Africa and Turkey. Leading up to Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see Israel coming back into the land, Ezekiel chapter 36. Some see that as a fulfillment that has taken place when Israel became a nation again in 1948. The question that comes to mind though, is how could this be a fulfillment of prophecy when Israel does not recognize Jesus as their Messiah? And that I think I, it's, I'm safe to say the majority of them don't even practice Orthodox Judaism. The Jews in Israel today are much like Americans, secular not religious really at all. And so how could this be God bringing them back into the land? They're, they're, not, you know, they're not doing anything to warrant them coming back into the land. Ezekiel 36 addresses that and God says, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for my name's sake. God made promises and God's a fulfiller of his promises. I said, I'm gonna bring you back. I'm bringing you back. It's after that, that God gives them a heart of flesh for the heart of stone. Heart of stone being a stiff neck, stubborn heart. I'm gonna do it my way. A heart of flesh being a pliable heart. And then it also says that he's gonna fill them with his spirit after they're back in the land. You fast forward to the next chapter in Ezekiel 37. It's the, 
the vision of the valley of dry bones. And God shows Ezekiel this valley with all of these bones in it. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, Lord, you know. <laughs> these are dead, crumbling, dry bones. But then the bones start to rattle and they come together and skin and muscle come on them. And God says, this is the army of Israel. And then after that, God breathes into them the breath of life. The point being, they become a nation again, and it's after that, sometime after that, that they get right with God. Not that they're right with God right now. God has a plan, and I believe this is speaking of the fulfillment of that plan. When you come into Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's clearly a war, an attack against Israel. You have basically what would be the geographic locations of Russia today, Iran, which used to be called Persia until not too long ago, actually by the Western states, referred to it as Persia up until 1935. And then the uh, northern coast of Africa and Turkey clearly coming against them. It, it's interesting to see that God supernaturally will intervene in this battle to conquer over these, notice by the map, this outer ring of nations that are attacking. It's not hard to think of Russia and Iran being in cahoots today against Israel, is it? We live in times that are just so ripe for the fulfillment of this. When is this battle going to take place? Well, scholars, you know, they're, they're not 100% certain. Some say it could take place before the days of the tribulation. Some say it's in the tribulation at some point. You know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint when this is gonna happen, but it clearly states this is going to be in the latter days. This is something that is yet future towards the end of the world really as we know it. The question that I think is intriguing as we look at the Middle East in our day and we look at this prophecy of the battle of Gog and Magog against Israel, where are the surrounding nations? Notice this is the outer ring. Where is Lebanon? Where is Syria? Where is Jordan? Where is Egypt and all of this? They're not mentioned at all. And so this leads to speculation. And this is speculation that maybe they've been conquered. Maybe Asaph's prayer has been answered, that God has come in and given Israel the victory, and now it's retribution. We're going to attack you, a, a land that is dwelling without borders and in peace. Interesting, intriguing, speculation, okay? So don't take me to the bank on that one. But you have to admit, I think at the very least, that this is interesting when you think about specifically Ezekiel 38. How come those other nations aren't mentioned that have not, not just in our day, but perennial enemies of Israel throughout, throughout their history? How come they're not being mentioned in this particular prophecy? So I'm throwing that out there. Please don't walk away saying, Steve believes Psalm 83 is a prophecy and it's being <laughs> gonna be fulfilled any day. I, I, there was a, a, I won't even go into it. Um, anyway, I just lay it out there because it is interesting. Now what Asaph does is we get back to our Psalm. He's crying out to God for help. And now he pulls from what God has done in the past for the nation of Israel. He says in verse nine, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, 
who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us make for ourselves, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Now, you'll find all of these names that we just read in the Bible. Specifically, you'll find them in the book of Judges because it's referring to a couple of key battles that took place. In verse nine, when it speaks of Midian, it's talking about that group of people that came against Israel in the days of Gideon, the Midianites. They numbered 135,000 strong. Gideon was raised up to go against them. Gideon had an army of 32,000. That's one of Gideon's soldiers going against four Midianites. God told Gideon, you know, when you win, you're gonna think it was because of you. Your army's too big. Tell everybody in your army that's afraid to go home. 22,000 leave. <laughs> Understandable. He's left with 10,000. So this is one of Gideon's soldiers against 13 Midianite soldiers. And God's like, yeah, your army's still too big. Tell everybody to go down and take a drink at the brook. And the ones that cup the water in their hand and lap it, that's gonna be your army. 300 drink that way. It's one of Gideon's soldiers against 450 Midianite soldiers. That's gonna work. Now you're gonna know it's not you, but it's me that's giving you the victory. And so they go forth. They surround the camp, they have their pitchers, they have their torches, they raise their sword, the sword of the Lord. And for Gideon, God brings confusion into the camp. And the Midianites begin killing one another, wiping one another out. And Gideon chases them. And as he chases them, these leaders that are mentioned in verse 11, Oreb, Zeb, Zeba, Zalmunna, these are all put to death as he's chasing after them. I think the idea of what Asaph is doing is he's going, God, just like you gave Israel the victory in the past, you gave the weak power over the strong. So do that today. The other battle that's mentioned is in the days of Deborah, when Deborah was judging Israel and the military commander was Barak. This is when the Canaanites came against Israel. Jabin is the king. Sisera is the military commander. And when you take Judges 4 and 5, 4 is the account of the battle, 5 is the song of Deborah after the victory in the battle. It seems like what God did is he brought torrential rainstorms down upon them as they were fighting. The Canaanites had chariots, and so they had the upper hand. But with the torrential rains, their chariots were bogging down, and it gave Israel the upper hand. And what ended up happening is Sisera fled from the battle and he fled to the tent of a woman named Jael. And if you know the story, you know what Jael did. She took a tent peg and put an end to Sisera. Same idea here. God, you take the weak to put to shame the mighty. You did it then, do it again. Verse 13, as we continue on, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind as the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame. This is the imprecatory area of the Psalm that I wanted to address. Notice that he speaks of the, the wind, the fire, the water, those elements of nature. 
that God is in control of to use as he sees fit. The word imprecatory, the idea is an act of invoking a curse. They voice the desire that evil may come upon an enemy as judgment or retribution. And we see that in a number of places. Here's some Old Testament examples. In Psalm 69, verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Psalm 109.9, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Psalm 137, verses eight and nine. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Again, imprecatory. There are about 20 Psalms that have verses like that in them. I think there's around 10, maybe less, maybe a little more, that are classified as imprecatory Psalms, Psalms that are calling for curses. It's not just Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word is anathema. Let him be cursed to the lowest hell. If what? Well, if you don't love the Lord Jesus or if you're preaching a different gospel. So the question is, how do we understand specifically these Psalms? In the New Testament, Jesus said to love your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You say, well, yeah, that's New Testament. Well, remember in the Old Testament, we have the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So we see it throughout the Bible. Again, question, how then are we to understand these Psalms? Should we ignore them? No, we shouldn't ignore them. Should we use them as a model prayer? Lord, curse my brother who has done me wrong. <laughs> we should not use these. I knew that rhetorical question could be, a little, could be a little sketchy. The idea here is not for personal vengeance. This was actually just a, a great rabbit trail. For me, because, you know, I've known of the imprecatory Psalms and, you know, I don't pray that way. But I'll be honest with you, when you look at injustice taking place in our world today, okay, wherever it might be, whatever's going on, oh God, why don't you just take them out, oh Lord, you know? And so it's, it's a very relevant topic to speak of. So I'm going to quote things that spoke to me. This is from Ellsworth. The answer is not in looking at them, these Psalms, as the individual child of God seeking personal vengeance against his enemies, but rather as him yearning for the only true God to triumph over his enemies. It's kind of backing up to what I've said in the past. We wanna be really slow to go, I want justice, God, because we don't want justice when it comes to God, do we? We want mercy. Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We want to have the same kind of heart 
like that. In the model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, if it's your will that you wipe these people out, Lord, your will be done. And I think that's the idea. It's not a personal thing because I've been wronged, but I want to see God's will done. J.I. Packer wrote, these Psalms, these imprecatory sections, are voicing a zeal and passion for God's glory and for the triumph of his cause and his righteousness, which far exceeds ours. And finally, a man named Kevin Welch wrote this, the Christian must acknowledge that he is not innocent and that he needs Christ just as much as his enemies. In addition, these prayers convict the Christian to pray that his enemies would come to know the Lord. Look at verse 16, what what I stopped short of. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. When I pray for the situation that's going on in the Middle East right now, going on in Europe, going on in America right now, my main prayer is, Lord, that their eyes would be open. You know, I pray that not, not only for the Palestinians and the pro-Palestinians, I pray that for the Jewish soldiers that are out there dying on the battlefield. Lord, that their eyes would be opened, that they would know who you are, that they would know your son, Jesus Christ. That's what's the most important thing. And so I think that should be our heart when we look at injustices in the world, primarily what's going on. But everybody's going to make their choice, right? I mean, not everybody's going to go, even if they're presented with the truth, that they're going to go, yeah, that's what I want to do. They're going to do. They're going to follow the path that, that they're going to follow. And so as we finish up the Psalm, verse 17, let them be confounded and dismayed forever Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. One day, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will know one day. You wanna make your decision for the Lord before that day comes. You've come out today. If you haven't trusted Christ as your savior, he is the only way for salvation. You wanna put your faith in him before you pass from this life. If we can pray with you at the close, please come forward, let us do that. For the majority of us, we need to recognize that those who oppose God are not only going to be against God and against the followers of God, but they're going to be against the followers of Jesus Christ. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place. People hate God. They hate the people that love God. And it's because there's a real devil that's influencing this entire world. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. (sighs) To be forewarned is to be armed for what's coming, okay? God, help us to have the right heart towards those that would persecute, that their eyes might be opened, that they might come to know the truth. 
The New Bible Commentary said, this is what we should wish, not just personal relief from opposition, not just the end of opposition, but the conversion of those who oppose. That they may seek your name, that they may know that you are the most high. Lord, as we come before you today, we're thankful for your love for us in bringing your son Jesus so that we can have our sins forgiven, we can have peace in this life, and we can have hope for the life to come. And Lord, I do pray for the situation in Israel. Lord, I pray that your will will be done. Lord, I pray that the eyes of all who are there will be opened and that they will see who you are and what you have done for them. I pray for the unrest that's not only over there, but it's in Europe, it's in America, it's spreading across the world. Lord, that, Lord, that your people would rise up, shining like bright lights, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, making your name known. And may many people come to know who you are. And Father, we especially pray for any who may be in our midst, who have not yet surrendered their life over to you. We pray that they would reach out today. In Jesus' name. Amen.